Welcome to Asset Yield, the podcast series of Kinsteller's Asset Solutions Sector, where we speak with principal investors, advisors, and funders in the world of non-performing and non-core assets of all classes, bringing you frontline market insights in real time. Welcome to Asset Yield, the podcast series of Kinsteller Asset Solutions. We're here today with Guy Stevens, Financial Sector Independent Consultant. Good morning, Guy. Delighted to have you with us. Very good to be here, Denise. Guy, to say that you are a Financial Sector Independent Consultant rather understates you. You have over 20 years of experience in the Central and Eastern European, Southeastern European financial markets. I would say you're really a financial sector renaissance man. Michelangelo of financial institutions. Um, So I hope you don't mind if I take this unique opportunity today in this podcast to to pick your brain on a number of financial sector issues. No problem. It's a very interesting time, so very happy to share my thoughts. Brilliant. Well, listen, before we kick off, let's start with a brief introduction. Would you kindly tell our audience a bit about yourself, your background, and what you're doing these days? So I am, by background, an investment banker. I started my career in 1997 at Schroeder's Investment Bank and then subsequently spent time um, at Citigroup, which is obviously the vehicle that acquired Schroeder's Investment Banking activities before working for Rothschild and then most recently for UBS. And now I'm a independent uh, consultant. During that period of time, I've advised on over $25 billion worth of M&A transactions in the region's banking sector and something like over $20 billion worth or equity capital raisings for financial institutions um, in the region. My career started in, in 1997, very much kind of focused on working with governments or acting opposite governments on bank privatizations across the Central and Eastern European region. And over time, um, as the region has matured, the activity has diversified and actually more and more transactions in the region have been private sector transactions. But I think the theme throughout with Central and Eastern Europe is that a lot of the actors from an M&A perspective have been Western European financial institutions as they were originally the the acquirers of banks privatized. And we see that today in terms of how the the region is structured, uh, where a majority, depending on the market, but a majority of bank sector assets in the region are effectively controlled from Western Europe which makes it very interesting because you cannot consider the the region in isolation to Western Europe. What happens in Western Europe very much impacts on Central and Eastern Europe. Germany sneezes and Serbia catches a cold. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Guy, thank you for that. As you indicate, you have a, a long and storied career. And both of us were in London in 2008 and watched the Lehman guys walking the streets with their Iron Mountain boxes of family photos. I'm keen to get your sort of um, historical perspective. There have been many comparisons of the current financial situation to 2008. On the other hand, there's a growing view that while 2008 was a liquidity crisis, our current situation is more of a credit crisis, more like 1930, that there is a tsunami of bad credits about to wash over the banking capital market sectors. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that's a fair comparison. I mean, it's a very different situation than the global financial crisis in 2008. And as you said, Denise, I mean, a lot of that was a, a kind of a liquidity crisis. But the, the crisis, the economic crisis, was as a result of the financial sector. Today, where we, we sit, 
is that we are entering a, as you say, a kind of 1930s style um, economic recession. And the cause of that is not the financial sector. It's effectively the cause is, is a result of a pandemic with governments shutting down very significant proportions of economies. So in a sense, it's the governments that have been the, the actors in terms of pushing economies into recession for, for understandable reasons, given the health crisis. So what we see today is we see you know, a banking sector that, unlike in 2008, has entered this crisis in a very, very different position in terms of banks in 2008 weren't particularly well capitalized. Today, banks are very well capitalized or were very well capitalized as they entered into this uh, crisis. Liquidity is not an issue. But today we have a bit of an unknown in terms of governments have stepped in, particularly in Western Europe, in a manner that is almost unprecedented in terms of providing economic support um, to economies. Uh, we see that in terms of you know, furlough schemes. But then also, I think in terms of what we see in the region as well, is that regulators have stepped in. They have issued a number of kind of forbearance measures in terms of easing capital and liquidity requirements, but particularly for relevant for the region is these moratoriums that have been put in place for the credit side of the business. And we've seen you know, moratoriums take different forms in the most extreme some markets in the region. You know, we've seen governments effectively impose moratoriums where the borrowers have to kind of opt out of the, um, of the moratoriums as opposed to decide to participate. So what I think we're seeing now is you know, we're not over the health aspects of this crisis, but the economic part of this crisis is effectively delayed. And it's very hard to form a view in terms of what that is. But what is clear, I think, is you know, once uh, furlough schemes are unwound, once moratoriums come to an end, we are going to see the impact. And as you said, Denise, we could potentially see you know, a tsunami in terms of debt on the credit side. But today, it's very, very difficult to actually quantify what this could mean for banking sectors in the region, given all the government support that is being put in place, but also in terms of you know, borrowers having this ability to effectively delay repayments or not make the payments on debt. And how they respond in terms of unlocking of economies is very difficult to predict. You have wonderfully, wonderfully presented the elephant in the room from all of its views. <laughs> I feel a bit like the ant <laughs> who's crawling around. Let's slice up this elephant a bit because there is a lot to unpack in your overview and all of it is quite relevant. You mentioned that banks are currently well capitalized, and this is the case. Speaking with uh, EBRD, for instance, and our banking clients, we don't have that situation of banks looking for liquidity lines as we did in the past. And you also mentioned that many of the banks in our region, Central and Eastern Europe, Southeastern Europe, are owned by Western investors. If you call Austria the West, then that would be Austria and going further West. Do you see, even with these strengths, so to speak, do you see some financial sector consolidation coming out of this, I don't know if we call it a crisis yet, out of this situation? And what are your thoughts about that? So actually, our conversation is very timely because there was an interview one week ago with um, Andrea Enria, who is the, the chair of the supervisory board of the, the ECB. And from an ECB perspective, he was saying that they would be very supportive of consolidation um, in terms of the banks that they regulate on the basis that 
there are just generally too many banks today in Europe, but there are just so many pressures that banks are facing in terms of profitability. And I mean, one of the things I was remiss to say is that banks, whilst they entered this crisis, strong position from a capital perspective, strong position from a liquidity perspective, banks never fully recovered their levels of profitability after the global financial crisis. If you take into consideration the profitability of banks in 2019, the average Western European bank would have been generating a return of equity of less than 5%, which is lower than the typical cost of equity of a Western European bank of about 10%. One of the reasons for that was low policy rates. And one of the measures that um, central banks have obviously taken is to reduce policy rates as a result of this crisis. So if you're a bank today and you're looking, you know, irrespective of, of what may happen going forwards, you have considerable pressures in terms of your ability to generate revenue when you've got very low policy rates. That puts enormous pressure on effectively your net interest margins, your interest income. So banks have a lot of headwinds. And I think one of the points Mr. Enrio was making was that in the context of Europe having too many banks, particularly if you make the comparison with the US, one of the measures to drive effectively the bottom line um, or to support the bottom line is actually consolidation. Consolidation you know, allows synergies, it allows you know, greater degree of, of scale, and that hopefully you know, flows down to the profit, bottom line in terms of profitability. So I think as a general kind of comment, I do expect you know, with a, a regulator, in the case of the ECB, being supportive of consolidation, I think in time we will see consolidation of banks in Western Europe as a result of pressure on revenue. But this crisis as well, you know, as and when we see the impact in terms of what it means in terms of asset quality, what it means in terms of cost of risk, you know, that's another massive headwind in profitability. Mm-hmm. So I think that will act as a catalyst for consolidation. And consolidation in Western Europe, the extent it involves actors in Central and Eastern Europe, could give rise to M&A activity. And then, of course, on top of that, you know, again, you know, we, we don't know what impact this crisis is going to have on the banking sector. But to the extent that it is severe, once all the loan losses start flowing through, banks will again look at their business models. They will look at their strategies. Capital may be a scarce commodity. And in the same way that we saw as a result of the financial crisis, we may see banks decide to retrench back to their home market or to a more limited number of core markets, which could, could give rise to M&A consolidation in the context of Central and Eastern Europe. Very interesting. So banks are well capitalized, but due to a number of factors, including the negative interest rate uh, environment, not entirely profitable. And to take that whole idea a bit further, I'm a distressed asset kind of gal. So I see all sectors and all businesses as a series of assets, including the banking sector. To me, banks are just a bunch of business kiosks. You have a repo desk, a leasing desk, a lending desk, and so on. Do you see desks being spun off or business lines, or do you see banks, maybe this is an unfair question, but do you see banks being consolidated in their entirety? I think we we have seen some banks, uh, particularly in the Western world, post-financial, global financial crisis, divest businesses that they have kind of deemed long core. So for example, you know, we've seen a lot of banks in the aftermath of the global financial crisis spin off or sell asset management businesses, payments businesses, 
just to give a kind of few examples. We've seen very little so far as a result of this crisis, but I think banks have done a lot of cleaning up post the global financial crisis. So if you actually look at what they've got today, there's potentially less work for them to do or less things that they can do than after the global financial crisis. But I think they will look to you know, divest businesses that can generate healthy amounts of capital, as well as in certain cases, divest businesses in their entirety. I do think there's potentially in terms of you know, what's core, what's non-core, in terms of a, a kind of you know, a business line, there's less to do than there was historically. But I do think you will get people making very harsh decisions to the extent capital is a, short, a, a, a kind of you know, a scarce commodity and saying, you know, particularly in the context of Central and Eastern Europe, you know, do we need to be in this particular market? Do we need to retain this business? Either because that market may be a small market and even if they have a very strong business uh, that generates good profits, it will never be material to the overall group and therefore is a way of kind of raising capital, releasing risk-weighted assets, reducing management to a time you may see people divest. People may, again, just take a very harsh view and saying, look, we're in, this, in a particularly attractive country in Central and Eastern Europe, but the business itself doesn't have a good degree of scale and isn't generating a good enough return, so we'll divest it. I think those are the types of things that people will start thinking about as the, the costs of this crisis become clear. Understood. And analogizing, I mean, not strictly banking, but another aspect of financial sector is the insurance sector. Again, I see this as a series of assets as well. You have insurance companies, you have the insurance company investments, which are mainly real estate. And then you have, very interestingly, the claims. I read today that there are already over $25 billion of uh, business disruption claims. Do you see a similar kind of dislocation and relocation of the insurance sector? Insurers are going to obviously pay the price for the pain that is, is inevitably going to come. I think, you know, the, again, if you make a comparison with the, the global financial crisis, insurance companies today, you know, are relatively well capitalized. They have high solvency ratios. Solvency two is in force whereas it wasn't enforced at the time of the global financial crisis. So you've got, I think, better quality solvency. Again, I mean, you look at the kind of portfolio or businesses that insurers have, and a lot of them did a considerable amount of tidying up in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. So the extent of tidying that they can do today is much lower than it was. But again, you're right. There's a lot of pain that is inevitably going to come to the sector that will give rise to some activity. Guy, when you gave your holistic overview, you very correctly mentioned many of the moratoria or overall central bank emergency measures that have been implemented since you know the beginning of March of this year. These include payment deferrals, enforcement moratoria, various types of waivers and pretend and extend type of scenarios. I wonder about that stepping back and having a larger view as you do, whether this is helpful or in some ways creates yet another systemic risk in the sense that we're now all sort of artificially suspended and it's just a matter of kicking the can. At some point, the financial sector will have to reckon with this. What are your views on that? I mean, the financial sector, you're right, the financial sector will have to reckon with it. I think, you know, what has been done, though, is that the pain has been 
delayed and to some extent that the extent of the pain has been reduced for the sector because the, in a number of cases the pain is actually being borne by governments, less so in Central and Eastern Europe but if you look at say the UK, today in the UK there are something like 9 million people benefiting from the, the government's furlough scheme where 80% of the wages are paid by the state. Central Europe is not at all uniform in terms of you know, the extent of government intervention, but you do have intervention you know, on, a, on a pretty significant scale in a number of markets. So governments have, have stepped in, they've relieved the pain for the sector. Ultimately, taxpayers will effectively pay the cost of that. But in a sense, what it's done is I think it's reduced the immediate pain on the banking sector, the financial system, and effectively... I mean, the way that you say kicking the can down the road, I think is part of it. But the way I look at it more is in, in the sense the pain is kind of amortized over time rather than kind of coming, you know, up front. So I think, you know, that is, it will flow through, it will hit the banking sectors, it will hit the insurance sectors. But in a sense, you know, arguably it's better to have pain, you know, played out over time rather than coming up at a particular point, particularly if you're in the middle of a, a health crisis. Good point. I mean, in effect, we have flattened the financial curve just as we flattened the corona curve. But this goes back to your earlier comment. You say that governments have basically been the shock absorbers. We can all agree that we're going to be hit by monumental taxes as a result of this. But interestingly, this may actually be a catalyst as well for privatization of assets, particularly in the financial sector. Do you see some continuity there? Privatization, I think, is unlikely because, you know, we haven't, in a sense, seen, we have seen kind of, you know, support that is unprecedented, but it's very kind of different than, I think, what we saw in the global financial crisis, where you had, you know, governments, you know, directly intervening, you know, taking shareholdings in financial institutions, taking shareholdings in businesses. You know, clearly, it's not uniform across Europe. I mean, you have seen a lot of um, government intervention um, in terms of, you know, taking, for example, airline um, assets for understandable reasons. But the financial sector to date, the government intervention, I would say, has been much more on the regulatory side. It's been much more through monetary policy as opposed to direct aid to financial institutions. So privatization of the financial sector, so far, based upon what's happened, there's been little change in ownership. Privatization is more broadly. I think, you know, yes, you will see, you know, obviously the government's looking at every potential option to raise revenue. Given the size of the kind of state involvement in the economies across Europe, there aren't that many levers, I think, for them to pull. With respect to our particular neighborhood, Central and Eastern Europe, Southeastern Europe, in the context of these government or central bank measures, we have a very interesting phenomenon because, as you know, the measures have been applied on a jurisdictional rather than regional or EU basis. So you have a strange situation where our markets are fairly shallow and highly interdependent. And you have a very strange situation where adjacent jurisdictions and markets are actually on different government intervention frameworks and timelines. As an example, Slovenia's is for a year, whereas Austria right next door is significantly shorter. 
Do you see any opportunities and also issues coming out of this uh, sort of disconnect or lack of integration across the region? Will there be knock-on impacts on markets where some markets come out of the government measures earlier? Will they be disadvantaged to the ones that are in the government support for longer? Very, very good question. As a general kind of comment, and I'm, I'm not really qualified to kind of talk about some of this. I think the whole reaction to this crisis, you know, we've seen very little coordination in terms of the health aspects of this crisis. For example, you know, just simple things like, you know, sharing of, you know, PPE. And I think it's the same in terms of the kind of economic reaction. And it's the same in terms of the financial sector reaction. One of the kind of unintended kind of consequences of all of this is I think everyone has become slightly inwardly focused nationalistic is probably the wrong word. I think, you know, certainly in the UK, when you hear the government talk of, of resilience, which is effectively a kind of more inward looking view. I think as we emerge from this, we are going to just see very different trends. We're already seeing very different trends in terms of the kind of the, the, the pandemic curves. We're going to see very, I think, different economic trends, but also in terms of the financial sector. And Therefore, you know, when we talk about Central and Eastern Europe as a region, or indeed we talk about Western Europe as a region, I don't think we're going to necessarily see any kind of uniform patterns in terms of response. As you said, you know, each moratorium is different in the region in terms of duration, in terms of characteristics. You know, how are you know, borrowers in you know, markets that, you know, where there's, a, there's an opt-out mechanism going to behave relative to markets where there's an opt-in? I think it's anyone's guess. We are going to see, I think, very, very different dynamics from each market in the region and actually each market in Europe as we come out of this. But actually how that kind of you know, manifests itself, I think, is a guess at this stage. I imagine to go back to one of your earlier observations that there are general, the banking sector is very interdependent and owned by not necessarily domestic ownership. It'll be very interesting, for instance, for banks that are sitting in Central and Eastern Europe, Southeastern Europe, that are actually owned by Austria, Airstay, Raffi's, and various banks like that, how they will deal with the different measures across the region. Are you getting any feedback on that? Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say, I think you're sitting in Western Europe, and there are feelings that some markets have handled this in better ways than other markets. You see it in terms of the first quarter numbers for financial institutions only had weeks in a sense of impacts of the pandemic. And so it'll be very interesting to see the second quarter. But you see, for example, in this case of, say, Hungary or Serbia, where the moratoriums are more kind of characterized as a kind of opt out as opposed to opt in. People taking different kind of responses in terms of you know, how they provide for, for loans in those markets relative to markets where it's opt-in. Again, if you're sitting in, in headquarters in Europe, you are going to be feeling that, that certain markets have responded to this in ways that are more favorable for you than relative to, to other markets. That will impact in terms of how they, how they see individual countries in the region going forwards. I guess this leads back to bank valuations and your earlier comments about the banking sector consolidating and assets being bought and sold. 
from my world of non-performing and non-core assets, I see prices holding surprisingly firm. I would have thought that there would be a lot of bargains in the market, and yet prices have stayed within 10% of their pre-corona benchmarks. Do you see changes in bank valuation and insurance valuations uh, following this situation? Yeah, for sure. So far, the the impact on the, the banking sector has been particularly dramatic. So if you look today at the, the Euro stocks index of all stocks across Europe, it's down year to date by about 12, 13%, somewhere around there. If you look at the Euro stocks banks index, it's down by 35%. That's a dramatic reduction. It's understandable when you look in terms of forecasts for profitability for the year. The earnings per share forecast for banks, depending on the specific banks, are down by anywhere between kind of 30 to 50%, in some cases more extreme. We've already seen in terms of the listed banks, a massive correction in terms of pricing. What it means in terms of M&A activity, I think is, is to be seen. It all depends in a sense on the pace of recovery. Is it a V-shaped recovery? Is that going to give rise to a very kind of strong rebound in the profitability of banks in 2021 is anyone's guess. But so far, the financial sector has seen this very, very dramatic reduction in value for the listed banks. In terms of the M&A valuations today, there's very limited activity in M&A. I think that applies to all sectors, particularly the financial institutions uh, sector. And I think one of the problems today as an M&A practitioner is if you're trying to reach agreements on the price of a transaction, it's very, very difficult to form a view because we're not through the health aspects of this crisis, what the impact is on the quality of loan books. And therefore, it's very, very difficult to actually price an asset in the banking sector today. So to be seen, but I think you know, the, probably along with the hospitality sector, the airline sector, the financial sector, has been most severely impacted in terms of listed valuations. Well, you raise a very interesting point, which is near and dear to my heart, and that's the difficulty mm-hmm. the financial sector and banks in particular have in valuing any assets, uh, their own assets and particularly their loan books. As you indicated with the opt-in, opt-out, there are a lot of borrowers, for instance, who are good credits, but you know, understandably are taking advantage of the payment deferrals and other options open to them. I mean, why wouldn't you? It's interesting because there's really no way at this point of assessing what the actual damage has been. We know what the back book is for banks, what the NPL overhang is still from 2008, which had actually been minimized. Do you see a kind of uh, two second waves coming? One is uh, simply from the corona situation altogether, but maybe an adjacent wave of emergency measure caused uh, credit issues. Yeah, I think there will be those sorts of issues. But at this point in time, I would say there is pain to come. I think everyone knows that. Everyone has a very kind of you know, strong view that there is going to be some certain degree of pain. But actually quantifying that pain as of now is almost impossible. Yes. Because you, we just don't know where we are in terms of the coronavirus pandemic. We don't know what the economic impact is. It's very hard to actually be too specific in terms of how actually that could ultimately play out. 
Mm -hmm. There's a tendency for investors and in general for observers to characterize all of Central and Eastern Europe, Southeastern Europe as a single market. You who have lived and worked here and myself as well for quite a number of years know that this is not the case. There's a distinct difference between each jurisdiction and each market in our region. Do you see particular markets that have particular opportunities, particular issues? You know, on a market-by-market basis, what do you see in our region? You're entirely right. I mean, there are markets with very different characteristics, and we've seen that kind of through the crisis. I think, you know, if you look at, say, Poland from a, you know, economic perspective, has a very strong domestic economy. They entered the, the, the crisis in terms of a lockdown, I think, at a relatively early stage. They went in relatively harsh. They've had relatively few cases on a kind of basis of coronavirus relative to other markets. So all else being equal, you know, Poland, as an example, is as and when recovery kicks in, they should rebound quite strongly. Then the dynamics in the Polish financial sector are a little different to certain other markets. And just kind of, you know, one stat that comes to mind is something like 55% of the Polish banking sector assets are actually domestically owned. If you go to the other extreme in the region, say someone like Croatia, you will only have about 15% of banking assets uh, directly owned. So that in Poland means if you've got a strong recovery, strong domestic economy, you've got local actors, you're going to see a different dynamic than markets where you're much more dependent on international markets. And then in the context of Poland, they've obviously had, for the banking sector under the the existing peace government, what they call repolarization of the banking sector, where you've seen the state-controlled institutions account for an increasing proportion of sector assets. They themselves have had their own kind of agenda in terms of consolidation to increase the proportion of the sector that is domestically controlled by the state. And in that kind of context where you've got a a relatively well-positioned government, relatively well-positioned domestic financial institutions, you'll see, I think, you know, them take opportunities to pounce on any weakness or any actions from Western European players who ultimately decide, you know, they want to exit the market or they want to sell various assets. So I think you'd see a very different dynamic in, say, Poland, you know, relative to some of perhaps the more kind of southern parts of the region where, you know, there's much more dependence on actors outside of those markets, where economies are much more dependent on export markets, where unemployment uh, going into the crisis was at a much higher level, where government support through this crisis has been more limited Governments haven't had the, the resources to effectively kind of throw out the economy to provide the support. So I think what you could see is you could see the stronger countries getting stronger on a relative basis and the weaker markets having economic challenges, but also perhaps those are the markets, you know, they tend to be the smaller markets where if you're sitting in a headquarters in Western Europe, and you're looking at your portfolio of businesses, you may conclude, well, actually, these are marginal assets in the context of an international strategy, and maybe those are the the assets that they will seek to divest. So very, very different, I think, responses depending on the individual market. Very interesting observations and and feed nicely into your comments about M&A activity coming out of the financial sector. Poland is the Scandinavia of our region. I'm not even sure why it's ever included into Central and Eastern Europe. 
And speaking of Poland, we've seen quite a lot of innovative financial sector activity in the market. Some of it good, some of it bad. Lest we forget, get back. Not one of the shining moments. But we've seen a lot of opening consumer lending opportunities and also private debt. Do you see that, first of all, expanding in Poland and then also expanding across the region as maybe the traditional financial sector banks consolidate and sort of reduce the options? Other options will arise. Yeah, I think that's right. I would agree with what you say about Poland. As a general observation, I mean, the markets where you see those sorts of trends are the more developed markets and the larger markets across the region. So, for example, you know, you could say not quite to the same extent. You know, you see similar trends in Czech Republic. You see some trends in Hungary, or by virtue of its size, Romania. You'll continue to see that. I think, though, when you come to some of the smaller countries in the region, people just from outside at least see much less opportunity, and as a result, you see less of these alternative providers. It's very much more, as of today, the the kind of incumbents that continue to dominate in the market. I think that's just purely a kind of function of focus, as people do you know, tend to focus on larger, kind of more developed economies even though there may be opportunities in some of these smaller markets. So I think, again, you know, it's going to be a divergence of trends across the region. More bang for the buck. Continuing this sort of east-west debate, Central Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe actually were slower going into the 2008 crisis than Western Europe. As Canary Wharf kind of imploded, life was still going on quite okay in this region. And typically, the West comes out of these financial crises a bit faster. Do you see this uh, sort of uh, FIFO-FIFO accounting concept continuing for this scenario too, where the West comes out before the East, or do you see it kind of as an agnostic situation? I actually think, and I may be totally wrong on this, I actually think you take Russia, you take certain other markets like Belarus, Ukraine out of the equation, I think you will see a much better rebound actually in Central and Eastern Europe than you will see in Western Europe. I mean, in particular, you kind of look at the the kind of forecasts for places like the UK for the GDP outlook for the year or, or France, and you look at it compared to a lot of the Central European economies, and the picture in Central Europe is much more positive. There's a whole series of, of reasons for this. Straying outside of my kind of area of expertise, I think when you look at the response to the pandemic, Central and Eastern Europe locked down much earlier and much more severely than a lot of Western Europe. And I'm in the UK, so there's a lot of debate in terms of you know whether the, the UK locked down uh, too late. But Central Europe, I think, you know, caught the virus at a much earlier stage than Western Europe. From the pandemic perspective, most of the markets are in a better shape. And as a result, the degree of damage to the economy is much less dramatic than, say, the UK. A good example of that is, you know, somewhere like Slovenia. So Slovenia, despite its geographical location, you know, right next to Italy, which was the kind of epicenter of the the pandemic at the the very start of of March or late Fed, they locked relatively early, effectively, their economy fully reopened at the beginning of June. The number of cases that they have had in Slovenia uh, from the pandemic is very low. It's something like 1,500 cases, albeit in the context of a market of, of only 2 million people. But by kind of locking down that much earlier, 
locking down quite severely, the damage that the pandemic has done from a health perspective is less dramatic on a per capita basis. The damage that therefore to the economy is less dramatic because they can they can open up much earlier. And I think, you know, that's one example in Central Europe. So the Central Europeans have been slightly ahead of a lot of the Western Europeans in the curve. They've done less damage to their economies. And then a lot of these economies are still you know, a lot of them are, are obviously very open in terms of dependence on Western Europe. So in particular, you know, Slovenia, Czech Republic, you look in terms of, you know, how their economies perform, and there's a pretty strong correlation with performance of the German economy. Overall, they're much less open to kind of global trade, to pan-European trade, say the UK. So I actually think that, you know, they will recover much more strongly than in the case of many Western European economies. Hi, Stevens. We would be remiss if we didn't wrap up on that jolly and hopeful note. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Guy Stevens, financial sector expert extraordinaire. Great to speak with you today. And thank you so much for your valuable market insights. No worries. It's been a pleasure, Denise. Thank you.